know the why human trafficking work is needed to fight for the freedom of modern day slaves. But love, passion, commitment isn't all you need to be an effective and successful anti-trafficking advocate. Learn the how. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, Director of the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute at the University of Toledo. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast, where I'll provide you with the latest and best methods, policy, and practice discussed by experienced experts in the field so that you can cut through the noise, save time, and be about the work of saving lives. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation, episode 132. Today I have Jennifer Long, and she co-founded Equitas in 2009. Jennifer first began her career as an assistant district attorney in Philadelphia, where she mainly prosecuted cases involving adult and child physical and sexual abuse. Through this work, she sought justice on behalf of sexually exploited women and girls prior to the passage and enactment of any federal and state trafficking statutes. She's an OG. She's been doing the work before we even had the name for it. And this really fueled her commitment to improve a system that seemed to work against and often failed to protect countless victims of sexual violence and exploitation. The systemic gaps appeared to largely be attributed to a lack of access to specialized training, meaningful measures of success and insight into data causing prosecutors and other system professionals to often overlook or even misidentify victims at every stage in the process. So she was intent on improving the systemic response. She joined the National Center on the Prosecution of Violence Against Women as a senior attorney in 2004. Later, she convened a roundtable, Violence Against Sexually Exploited Women, How Prosecutors Should Respond. Then she co-founded Equitas to improve the quality of justice in gender-based violence and exploitation cases by developing, evaluating, and refining prosecution practices. So she helps prosecutors develop winnable cases and be sensitive to those cases and ethically and accurately prosecute those cases. My interview is interesting with Jennifer. So Let's get on with the interview and learn a lot more about what Jennifer offers. Jennifer, tell us, like, how did you even get interested in the law? Because just reading your bio is amazing. I mean, you've done some badass things as a badass woman. And how did you even get involved with with such courageous type of topics that you've been involved in fighting? Uh, I, well, you know, I, I think as an OG, maybe yourself, you know, (laughs) that these paths are complicated. They're probably, as I get older, there's probably more threads to these than that. I start to realize, um, those statistics really represent real people. So you start to know, um, victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, uh, stalking exploitation. I think um, some early opportunities in college, volunteer opportunities with children 
uh, domestic violence shelter, doing just, you know, after school homework and um, one in a local shelter started elevating to me the intersections of these crimes and children. And then later opportunities to work with social workers and other individuals providing care and trauma and interventions helped me realize that for survivors who were, who had reported crimes and were engaged with the criminal justice system and prosecutors, police, the phrase, my prosecutor as good or my prosecutor as bad really held, you know, significant meaning. A good prosecutor meant that the victim was listened to. Um, the case was proceeding in a way that they could understand. And the bad prosecutor, you know, could mean a host of things from someone not communicating at all to the way people were being treated to the way their cases were being dismissed. And I think I identified early on that I wanted to work on these type of crimes and with victims. And I felt like I could make an impact trying to be the kind of prosecutor that would um, be one that a victim would say was a good one and would help them be an ally, help them express their voice, help use the law as a way to shield them from attack and to really expose their perpetrators. I love that because, um, you know, I'm a social worker. And when I hear people say things like, you know, a social worker really messed up my life. I think to myself, I, I could see that because there are some really good quality social workers and there are some really terrible social workers and there are some really systemic structural issues that sometimes even if you have the best of intentions, it doesn't work out. Now, I've visited that comment on other professions and sometimes those professions don't want to look at themselves and say there are structural issues, there are people involved that probably shouldn't be in this business. So I love that you went in examining your own profession and saying, how can I personally make it better? And how can I bring you know, uh, structural remedies to this type of issue? So Tell me some of the things that you've done. So you recognize, okay, everybody's not going to, everybody's not great. Yeah. Things aren't working out. <laughs> yeah. So what did you start to do to make a difference? So, I mean, we, with reflection, I think looking back, I went in with the best of intentions and I think I did some really great things. And when I look back on my career, I think I missed some opportunities as well. Um, I was really lucky that I went into an office at the time. It was the Philadelphia district attorney's office back in the nineties. It had a robust family violence and sexual assault unit, about 18 attorneys, a DA who prioritized those crimes and incredible trial attorneys with compassion and skill and a respect for the multidisciplinary team before we had those words. Mm -hmm. So our both in-house victim witness and victim services person and our community advocates were very much a part of the fabric and really taught us a lot of what, I mean, even if you've survived this type of violence, which I am not a survivor, um, but you will have that perspective and certainly more insight than someone like I, but our 
partners had worked with so many survivors, they were able to illuminate a lot of perpetrator tactics, a lot of the way the trauma manifested, a lot of behaviors that that a victim might exhibit that is something that may not be expected. Mm. And then, um, so coming into that, I mean, you're a junior person. And when you come into a prosecutor's office, when you start, you're rightly not starting with those crimes. They are putting you on misdemeanor crimes and crimes without victims so that you are learning how to apply the law and how to advocate in a way that you, they're minimizing the harm, but they're giving you experience. Mm -hmm. And that was really important because it was the foundation for a lot of the trial advocacy skills. You are going up, even in those crimes, sometimes the defendants are being represented by some of the best attorneys in the city. So you are learning the importance of preparation. You're learning the importance of advocacy. You're learning communication, dealing with difficult situations and you are honing those parts of the skill while, and thankfully where I was, the compassionate part was also prioritized. And then when you demonstrated that you could communicate that way, you were then able to engage with victims and then ultimately selected to go into a unit um, that I was privileged enough to go into. So to answer your question, I think I tried to do it case by case. And by applying all of the things that I was learning to help advocate and really seek justice in a way that explained to the court or the jury or to anyone who might be in the um, galley that these victims mattered, these cases mattered, and that there weren't two courtrooms, one for, you know, victims who were deemed worthy and one for whom society may deem unworthy. Um, and that was how I tried to be a part of that and make myself available. I mean, I, you know, you have a lot of cases, but I, I do remember you remember survivors, you remember engagements. And I, I mean, it felt like a privilege to be walking alongside someone who had survived such horrific trauma and still was getting up, being able to be part of the process and engage now, how did you know, or did you know, or were you just fortunate or lucky to have landed in a place that taught you the value of using the skill, but also the value of compassion? Did you choose them or did you, was it just a, a blessing? Well, I did. I was lucky enough to be going to law school at the University of Pennsylvania, which was in Philadelphia, which gave me access to uh, be able to intern at the Philadelphia DA's office. And I, I had done some advocacy at legal services my first year. And then as a, you know, you're a volunteer, they allowed me in the unit and you're going to court with it. You're really just observing people. You're helping maybe with some research, but as a law student, there's not a lot. I mean, you don't always have the experience, but that engagement and some of those attorneys that I would ultimately work with and be my mentors, one of those people would actually come work with us at Equitas. <laughs> that was a great story. He's now a judge. But um, I witnessed it. You see people who are committed to cases, who are passionate, who are making arguments in court. I mean, they are I just incredible trial attorneys. And they are standing up to the myths and the attacks against 
victims and survivors and the sort of um, bullying, I hate to throw around that room, but that happened, can try and happen in a courtroom. And they were incredible and they were full humans. Um, They, you know, engaged with us. They love to teach us. And in some ways you're a little, I mean, you're, sometimes you can be picked on by the system because you are, and I was, again, I, I don't say that my office was perfect because it wasn't. I know there were things that could have been done better. I think if you're critical, you're going to look back and say, gosh, we should have done this better. But there was a philosophy that we took cases forward, um, that we um, did not measure our success by wins or losses, although there's a very you know strong outcomes, but that these cases were complex and they deserve to go forward. And there were people in the system who would be like, I hate those cases. You're wasting my time. In cases where I mean, we're talking about sexually exploited women and girls, a lot of stated directly or unstated, this isn't really a rape. These are individuals who are engaging um, in voluntary sex and exchanging money. These are individuals who um, who are ruining the perpetrators' lives. Like there's that current that's going on. That the unit I was in, the office I was in, that that was vigorously um, defended. And you know, as as almost you know, unbelievable as it sounds, that that and incredible that that could be an outside atmosphere. I think I think that undercurrent still exists. I think maybe people are smarter and they don't say it. You know, a lot of people want to be a Philly DA. So again, I I remember where I was when I got the offer, and it was the best for me, one of the best days of my life. That's awesome. I right. We I think that that undercurrent is is totally still alive and well. And you know, we we can't always pick. We can't choose the prosecutor. So how do we determine? Even defense attorney, how do how do we determine a good lawyer, somebody invested, somebody who's bringing more to the table than just the 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 law and uh, some of their skills, but is a full human being that's invested in this issue? How do we tell the good from the bad? I mean, unfortunately, some of it is by experience, right? In terms of when you get involved with someone, you start seeing what kind of advocate they are and what kind of person they are um, and what kind of office. I mean, I think that's why it's so important for offices to have leadership and to build good, skilled prosecutors with the right technical skills and the right compassion to, you know, to be there for a survivor wherever their rape happens, wherever they're reporting, they deserve to have access to someone who is you know, able has the capacity to handle their case and is again, compassionate and can treat them respectfully. And I think one thing we can do is start demanding that most prosecutors are elected. Some are appointed, but, and even, you know, great prosecutors, these crimes may not be their top priority. Not that they're not a priority, but, you know, there's different climates that happen, different incidents happen that can push other crimes or crime victims you know, into focus. Um, and so I think a community that cares about this issue can always make sure that their elected officials are appointed or the office, they know what the position is and they know that it's a priority for the community. Good, good. Well, so tell us what Equitas does. Why did you, 
Why did you co-found it and what does it do? So Equitas is a national organization that works primarily in the 58 uh, U.S. states, but also we work internationally um, on issues related to the prosecution of sexual violence, domestic violence, stalking, and human trafficking. And we do that by providing training. We provide technical assistance. That's anything from, you know, it's an expert consultation where someone's in trial and may have a question that's specific, a legal question specific to trial, or maybe have a question about an expert to a bigger policy decision of, you know, what sort of best practices should we be implementing to what sort of projects we should be doing. And then through our expert publications, we have over 180 unique publications that really try to combine the top legal research, social science, scientific forensic research into resources that can be easily used and adapted by prosecutors or other allied professionals, either in their advocacy in these cases or in their way of improving their community. And we were co-founded because the work I was doing before really high in um, both as a prosecutor, but then at the um, National Center for Prosecution and Violence Against Women really highlighted the need for more focused, intensive support on these issues that could be provided to the, you know, there are over 2,400 state, local, federal offices, maybe like 30, over 34,000 prosecutors, all of whom may come into contact with a survivor who's a victim of one of these crimes or sexually exploited. So they can make a difference and we want to help them to help those survivors. Well, and is your, your materials that are online, can you tell people how to get access to them? And are they, um, you know, it's a readability for people like me and just regular people or really are they geared toward prosecutors or both? You know, they're geared towards prosecutors, but I think we try to make them read. We want the feedback. We want them to be readable and understandable by all. We want it to synthesize. I think one thing we could do better, and it's definitely one of our goals, is to take the materials and make them as accessible, make them more for a reader who may not be practicing, but who as a, again, a citizen of the community, a potential victim or, or an actual victim or friend or family member of one can have an understanding knowledge of the situation, the laws, and raise their expectations of how these crimes should be treated, how they should be treated, because I think that would push the system. And we have them all available free on our main website is equitasresource.org. And I'll spell it, but you know, we can make, put that out there. It's A-E-Q-U-I-T-A-S resource, all one word.org. And then in our Just Exits initiative, we've tried to curate some of all of the resources are available there, but on justexits.org is where we've put the resources specific to our work to try to minimize the harm and maximize justice for um, human trafficking victims and sexually exploited women and girls. So the just exits component is really specific to human trafficking. It is. Um, so just exits came from uh, the thought behind a grant, which uh, grant application, which was um, the goal of which was to the stated goal from the funder. It was Novo Foundation put forth the grant was to close on ramps 
to sexual exploitation and to create exit ramps from sexual exploitation for criminally justice-involved individuals. These could be individuals who are identified as victims, witnesses, maybe defendants. So when we put this application together, um, I actually came up with a name. And the only reason I'm like almost proud of it because I never come up with any name, but it was obviously there was a lot of brainstorming going on. So this was not just me sitting in a room, but because for us looking at it, we wanted the inter the intersection with a victim and a prosecutor should only lead to an exit, should never push you into criminal, into sexual exploitation. And it always should be founded upon justice. I mean, that's the foundation of the name of Equitas. It's just outcomes, equitable outcomes. And so that's really the, again, the foundation of that, of this project is really the mission of the project to make sure no matter what the circumstances are, the outcomes never greater exploitation of the individual. Can you give us an example of one of your more successful cases, one of the cases that you're most proud of? Sure. Well, and to be clear, so Equitas does not handle cases. We oh. provide TA to prosecutors who are handling cases, some of whom tell us outcomes, some of whom did not. Tell us the, a great a time when you gave great technical assistance and it actually worked the way that you envisioned it, that it should work. Sure. And again, we are only a little piece of it, but one of the first things we actually did under this project was to write an amicus brief on a criminal case where the defense wanted to introduce evidence of a rape victim's prostitution convictions in an attempt in furtherance of the defense um, of the defendant. Mm -hmm. And let's be mindful that even in the reporting of this, there in no part of the report, I mean, we know that sexually exploited women and girls and boy, men and boys trafficked individuals. Oftentimes in the sex trade, it's very violent and they are very vulnerable to assault, both physical and sexual. So that is a time to be targeted. And if you are in the life and you are raped at that point, you are no less a victim of any uh, anyone else's and absolutely deserve justice. In this particular case, there was no um, report that these individuals were engaging in the sex trade, were trafficked during the course of these rapes. And for many reasons, um, we, we really wanted to highlight for the court that not only was it inappropriate, and th there was an attempt by the defense to try to challenge the current law, which would have excluded this evidence. But not only did we want to support the prosecutor's argument that this shouldn't come in because of the law, we wanted to highlight for the court that in addition to that, we've learned so much about trafficking and so much about sexual exploitation. So not only this vulnerability, which should never come in and be relevant, but we also understand now that individuals have been wrongly arrested, charged and conviction and convicted for prostitution related crimes that they may have been forced um, or defrauded or coerced in other way to engage in. So even the notion that a prostitution conviction is an accurate conviction is wrong headed. So it was an interesting, it was a really, for me, I thought it was a really great um, way to come together. It was principally authored by Equitas and the Women's Law Project in Philadelphia. 
We had many organizations sign on to it. The outcome was a good outcome. It was our outcome. Hey, before we continue the episode, I want to let you know of three courses I offer. Effective Case Management with Human Trafficking Survivors, the TNT Survivor Journey Groups, and the Best Life Human Trafficking Prevention course for girls that are at risk. Raising awareness around human trafficking is a great start. Hanging up flyers, having fundraisers, doing human trafficking presentations, or even joining an anti-trafficking coalition or commission or student group. But it simply isn't enough. If you or your group aren't touching the lives of survivors or those at risk in meaningful, in healing ways, you're missing a critical component. I want you to get back to the reasons you joined the anti-trafficking fight in the first place. The reason you joined that coalition or that commission or that student group. You wanted to make a difference, but maybe you didn't know exactly what to do and so presentations seemed doable. Why? Because you had the knowledge and skills to do it. Well, if you're really ready to get directly involved and help change the lives of others for the better, then this is an important message for you. I have almost 30 years experience working with survivors and studying the issue, and I'm circling back to help you become effective and confident in your ability to work with survivors of commercial sexual violence. I wrote a few books, developed some courses that would love to train you on how to be involved directly. Just go to my website, CeliaWilliamson.com, and check out my webinars. Learn a little more about how you can become knowledgeable and skilled to actually work with survivors using my trauma-informed courses. And now, on with the podcast. Did our brief make a difference? I don't know. I really don't know. Certainly wasn't cited in any of the arguments or in the decision, but I hope and I think that it made a difference. And I hope it made a difference to the victims who may never have known that it was there, um, but just in how they may be treated. And I have to believe that if judges read this and the other parties read this, it might help them rethink their positions and behaviors later on. And that's something we really talk about at Equitas, that sometimes your efforts may not may not even look like they're bearing fruit until later down the line. And it takes you doing it repeatedly and in different ways for you to make change. I think so, because what it adds to the, the whole process is this sort of lowering of stigma, sort of changing the perspective um, of the way that that judge or that prosecutor or those folks involved might see that particular victim, but also, like you said, future, it might color the way that they see the issue in in a positive light. So yeah, I think that's amazing work. It's not the out front, glorious, sparkling work that you can walk away and say, wow, everybody knows what we did. It's the quiet kind of behind the scenes work that's the most powerful. As people say, you know, the revolution starts with changing a thought. Absolutely. And, you know, there was another part of this brief too, that I thought was really timely because it was being written during a lot of the discussions of criminal justice reform and racial justice, because what we were also pointed out is the, not only the way rape law 
treated primarily Black and African-American women, but also other women of color. And in these crimes with sexually exploited women, um, particularly, they're arrested at much higher rates than others. So there was a racial component to this, which for me, sometimes the way I work best during debate and times of strife is to feel like I'm doing something concrete that might remedy a situation. And so I thought that was another, again, it wasn't, didn't by all, you know, by all means, it didn't look like it, it wasn't cited anywhere, but I am hoping that that also made the impact so that people really thought about the, the issues of racial justice from the victim and survivor perspective, which are often overlooked in the current dialogue. I'm a proponent of using your anger in very productive ways. I'm I'm angry a lot, and I like to channel that anger into positive productivity to fight against injustice. So, what was the what was the situation that really propelled you to say, "I am willing to spend uh, the majority of my days on this issue or these these issues"? I mean, I think seeing the horrific, and it's not, I mean, again, I'm not, it's a, I'm not sure if it was any one case or just a combination of all cases building and building to see how horrifically people can violate and abuse another person and blame them for it and not take any accountability or responsibility or even show any compassion during the assault, during the trial, during the, and again, I understand people, I'm a big believer in due process. I don't believe that you have to choose between advocacy for survivors and due process and fairness for offenders. I, I fully am open to it, but the attacks that happen in those courtrooms are really, you know, above the pale and, Then at the end, oftentimes when there's a conviction and a sentencing, we may then see remorse from the offender. And it, it sort of fell very flat to me. And so I think just watching people be treated and watching the legal arguments and especially trafficked or at that time, unidentified trafficked individuals, individuals in the sex trade, sexually exploited individuals, just being treated like they're not credible because of what they do or it really didn't matter because of what they do. I just was infuriated by that and wanted to be a part of fighting back against it, wanting to be able to allow those individuals to fight back and to support that and to give them a platform to do it. Even when it was almost violative inside, I still think having the opportunity, having the system say your voice matters and giving you the victim the ability to report to explain to condemn what happened to you i think can be very powerful absolutely well jennifer do you uh, do presentations and consultations perhaps with people or other attorneys and if- we do oh. yes and we are grant I and mean, we are grant funded um so the, maj- the overwhelming majority of what we do 
um, is, I mean, like hundred percent of what it, we do is available and free of charge. We do live trainings, we do webinars, we record them so that they're available. Like I said, we write and we do things on demand. Um, sometimes when things are a little bit more intensive or may fall outside of the grant outlines, we may have to do a contract for that. And we, you know, have done that on occasion as well. Um, but we do, we, and again, there are issues related to the prosecution. So we do train prosecutors, but we also train other members of the system, um, and community members of the community, again, to help them understand maybe their role, the prosecutor's perspective so that they may understand how to work better with that person um, and may understand the system a little bit better to do their job better, maybe gives them some tools. And then we do respond to requests, individual requests, sometimes from prosecutor's offices, sometimes law enforcement, sometimes for advocates who are working on a case and want to talk through something and maybe um, make us available to a prosecutor who may be up against a challenging legal issue. Um, that case I talked about, the amicus brief, we were invited by the prosecutor um, to provide an amicus brief to support their position. And tell us what an amicus brief is. I have no idea what that I'm is. I'm so sorry. Yes. That doesn't appear well, it's on, a friend. on order. I don't know. <laughs> I forget. Um, so it's a friend. It's basically a brief that's filed in an appeal that is, it's, Amicus, I think, means friend of the court, and it doesn't have, it's not filed by one of the parties, but it is supposed to underscore a policy issue and can provide the court with some information. And so in this case, we talked about the law a lot and the history behind the law to sort of underscore the issues I talked about, but it's more for policy and just as an additional piece of support and may or may not be considered by the court. That's awesome. And you're available in all 50 states and all the U.S. territories? We are available. We've, I think we've even provided training in all of them. I was lucky enough to go to some of the territories and um, we do, again, we do work internationally and we are available 24-7 to the prosecutors. We have our staff, our, our headquarters is in Washington, D.C., but our staff is located across the United States. And so we, um, we do have someone on call. We don't serve victims or survivors. And so that's, it's just not, not only do we not have the training to do it, we also don't have the capacity to do it well. Um, we work with prosecutors, but because prosecutors work at different hours, might be working at cases, we don't get a lot of calls, but we do get them. And we, we've, you know, tried to help. Awesome. I mean, no calls after hours calls. We get a lot, a lot of calls during the regular business day. <laughs> okay. And so what's your website again? And do you have a uh an email address if someone wants to reach out. Sure. So our, our website is equitasresource.org. My email address is jlong, L-O-N-G, at equitasresource.org. I can also provide it to you. I don't know if you ever, if you want to put it up um, in your description, if it makes it easier. People can also go on the website. The Just Exits website is justexits.org. And that is where people can go and see um, the great um, attorney advisor teams we have focused to that to that project, as well as our advisory council. Um, we work with an incredible team of advisors, experts, advisors who have different expertise, many of them in social work, many of them in outreach that have partnered with us to really keep survivor voices and to keep the project survivor led. Um, 
And it again, it really was started from the the understanding that so many of um, these individuals are not identified. Even when they're a victim, they may come in as a victim, identified as a victim of another crime, and the sexual exploitation may be missed. Or they may come in charged with a crime, and they are not their cases are not assessed accurately. And so they are, again, perhaps wrongfully arrested. And when the prosecutor gets it, it continues wrongfully charged and even wrongfully convicted for something that for a crime that they were forced to do or that they may not have even you know committed. And you know, crimes are complex. So, you know, it's not always just don't arrest or arrest. There could be other factors that you look at. Maybe, um, maybe the charges are not what they should be. Maybe someone did commit a crime, but not the crime that they're being charged for. Or maybe there's a way of diverting the case. Maybe there's a way of, if it has to be charged, charging with a lesser crime. Maybe there's a way to look at sentencing. I mean, certainly if you have someone who's being forced into the life, even if they have, you know, aggressively committed an assault and there needs to be some sort of, um, it needs to be charged and there needs to be an outcome. You know, we shouldn't be putting that person in a batterer's intervention or in other interventions that we open up to other violent individuals. We need to be treating the trauma. So we really try to have prosecutor's offices not only better identify, but really think about how to assess culpability ethically and accurately. So they're not pushing people deeper into the life to understand. And so many of these um, survivors and our partners or advisory council partners talk about how sometimes in the representation of, of individuals, when they have um, maybe been, again, either been forced to commit a crime or may have committed a crime, they will be, you know, maybe it's not explained to them what the outcome of the a plea would be, and they end up charged and having all of these convictions that have long lasting impacts on them that are really, that may interfere with their economic well-being, housing, their ability to even get benefits. And so um, we really try to ensure that we're educating jurisdictions so that they are knowledgeable about this, they're making better decisions, and that they're leading their communities to do it differently. That really is victim-centered. That, what you described, is really uh, a great way of understanding what we all throw around as victim-centered services. So, right. Jennifer, is there any advice, uh, any parting words that you'd like to share with with advocates who are trying to do the right thing or even people who are budding attorneys or seasoned attorneys that want to do the right thing? Absolutely. I mean, I think that there's a lot of information and a lot of material out there. Um, some of it may not, you know, some of it not so good. You really want to understand. I mean, if you don't have expertise in the issue, the importance of identifying some organizations, some places, Equitas, you know, we're certainly one of those places where we have resources where you can get a good understanding of the background of the issues. I would say ensuring that you're reaching out um, for assistance, if you're doing something maybe you haven't done before. And the raising the expectation, first of all, understanding you, even as a new attorney or as someone new in the system, you have a perspective to bring and a voice that really can even help maybe challenge the way things were done and can help people think differently. Mm -hmm. And then 
when you're in a community having this demanding really that your offices are elevating the issue. And um, we certainly, again, we have resources on this where we can help and they are, your prosecutor's office is free to call us. We're happy to talk with them. We'd like to tell them about these projects and things that they can do because survivors' voices really, right now too, they're really being left out of the conversation in a way that, um, you know, this is a very salient time. There are a lot of important conversations happening and survivors' voices need to be heard and it's time for them to receive justice as well. That was Jennifer Long from Equitas. And this episode is important. Keep Jennifer Long in your Rolodex because if there is a case being prosecuted in your community, think about connecting that prosecutor with Equitas because not all prosecutors are skilled and educated and have been trained in the area of human trafficking. Jennifer's people have. So connect both of them because you know what will happen is you will be connecting the prosecutor to someone knowledgeable and skilled, someone that is able to challenge that prosecutor to put on the best case possible. And therein, you will be helping that victim to win justice. So that is a good person to know. Keep Equitas in your mind and call on them when you need them. Services are free. Remember, the more skilled the prosecutor is, the higher the likelihood that the victim will receive justice. Remember that if she is at risk of not receiving justice, then you're at risk of not receiving justice. Even if her life was different than yours, even if her experiences were different than yours, and even if her shackles seem different than yours. Until next time, the fight continues. Let's not just do something, let's do the best thing. If you like this episode of Emancipation Nation, please subscribe and I'll send you the weekly podcast. Until then, the fight continues.